Hey everyone, this is Carlo on 4GQ TV, and today we have a very special interview. Uh, first, before we introduce our guest, who is amazing, by the way, um, Paul is on the panel with me. And today our guest is Chris, and correct me if I say your last name wrong, because I have a bad habit of that, Sarandon. Pretty good. All right, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, Chris, thank you very much for being here and spending some time with us, um, answering our questions. And one of the first questions I always like to ask is, how did you get started doing everything that you got into? What was the very first stepping stone for you in the industry? Well, as far as the industry is concerned or as far as, you know, when I knew I was going to be an actor? Uh, let's start with when you knew you were going to be an actor. Uh, that started when I was in college. I, I went to, uh, I grew up in a town called Beckley, West Virginia, a small coal mining town in West Virginia, formerly coal mining town, not so much now. And um, uh, I grew up there. My father was an immigrant from, uh, he's Greek, but he was from a small Greek village in Asia Minor. And uh, he opened a restaurant in that town uh, once he sort of made his way here and uh, was able to earn money and save money and and buy a place of his own. Uh, and so I grew up there and I grew up as kind of a, um, um, well, a, the description I give people is that uh, whenever my family and I would go to Greek gatherings, uh, because there weren't many Greeks in my hometown, so we would go to other towns where there were going to be other Greeks gathering and there maybe a priest would stop and he would do a liturgy and then we'd have a party uh, something the Greeks called a glendy, and um, people would be dancing and singing and, you know, whatever, and my parents would kind of pull me around by the hand, and they'd lead me up to people, and they'd say, okay, tell them who you are, and I would say, I'm 100% American and full-blooded Greek. Well, that was my <laughs> kind of mantra, right, <laughs> that, that, that I was uh, required to repeat to everybody, uh, in the presence of my parents. And that was kind of my existence. I was sort of a two-sided person. I was a kid, an American kid. I grew born here, grew up here, went to school here. And yet at home, my parents spoke Greek. Um, my father's restaurant, I grew up in my father's restaurant as well. He was, uh, it was not a Greek restaurant. Uh, so there was the American work side, the Greek home side. And there I was trying to navigate both. And I think that's a probably pretty good training for an actor uh, because you have to play roles. Uh, when I was out in the, the world of Beckley, West Virginia, I was the all-American kid. I was the kid from West Virginia. I had friends. I had uh, I played basketball. I, uh, um, uh, I, I was part of the everyday life of my friends. Uh, and at home, I was this Greek kid. Uh, and I tried to reject that side of me for a long time. And it wasn't until I got older uh, and started appreciating the history of my lineage and also the history of where I grew up that things started coalescing and, and really were part of what made me into a performer. Um, I was always good at telling stories. I was always good at doing accents. I had a really good ear. Uh, probably one of the reasons because I grew up, at least when I was little, speaking a foreign, a foreign language, quote, unquote, foreign. Um, and, uh, and so by the time I was in college, 
I, I was very interested in um, being popular and uh, uh, girls, of course, but also politics. And I was coordinating weekends and doing all kinds of stuff in college. And I was kind of spinning my wheels. And I took an acting class just, uh, just for the hell of it. Uh, it. It was an easy class. All I had to do was go to the class. I didn't have to take any exams. Uh, and it was helping my grade point average because I was making really good grades. And the professor, the guy who was teaching the class said, uh, I, I'd like you to be in one of my plays. And I said, oh, I don't have time. I've got to be at, at, uh, I'm coordinating the leadership conference and I've got homecoming weekend coming up and I'm coordinating homecoming weekend and I'm doing this and that. And he said, oh, it won't take much time. Uh, you just have to come to a couple of rehearsals. You're going to be a, you know, kind of a crowd scene kind of guy. And so I did it again for the hell of it because uh, I thought it would be interesting and broaden my horizons. And after we finished that particular production, he said, I want you to be in the next show, but I want you to play the lead. <laughs> and I looked at him like he was crazy. <laughs> I'd been in one play, never been in a play. Well, actually I was in the senior class play in high school, but it wasn't a big deal. And I was also, I guess when I was in the sixth grade, I was Frosty the Snowman. There, hey, there you go. <laughs> right. You know, we've all been through that, right? So, so, so anyway, this guy said, and I want you to play the lead in this play. It's called Tartuffe, and I want you to play Tartuffe. And uh, also, it just so happens that the woman who's playing opposite you is Miss West Virginia. And I thought, that's for me. <laughs> and, and I also got to wear a fake nose and a wart on myself my face. And I thought, hey, hey, look. And it that was it. From that moment forward, I decided to be an actor for the rest of my life. I don't ask. My father was a, a chagrined. He was appalled. Uh, my mother, of course, was, honey, whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy, as most of our moms are, right? Uh, and uh, I quit everything. I quit. I was living in a fraternity house. I left the fraternity house. I moved in in a boarding house with a, a wonderful older woman who had an extra uh, bedroom and we shared a kitchen. She was the grandmother of actually a friend of mine. And um, and I, I didn't do anything but do plays and go to class in theater for the last two years of my college career. Wow. And and I got to play a couple of three leads and shows. I mean, thinking back on it, what was it? There was something inside me that said, this is where you belong. And I listen. A lot of times people don't. And I have to give myself credit for that, that I basically went, I'm going all in. I'm not going half in. I'm not, I'm not going to hedge my best by getting a degree in something else. This is it. And here I am. I don't want to say how many years later. <laughs> it's, been, it's been 60, almost 60 years later, and I'm still at it, kind of. And, and to me, that's really cool because you don't hear stories like that nowadays from, from people who decided to go all in like that and just drop everything and, and just don't, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think sometimes you have to take the chance and see what happens yep. uh, and have a, have a plan B, of course, you know, have a fallback. But at the time I didn't have a fallback. 
I didn't yeah. have any other, I, I, there was nothing else. And quite frankly, I don't know if there was anything else that I could have done. <laughs> been, you know, where I would have been any better at. It. So that's so, the that's the origin of the Chris Sarandon actor story. Nice. So what was the first step from uh doing the plays in theater to actually um getting into on the whether it be the you know the big screen in the movie theater or the TV screen or voice acting? What was uh that transition like uh it was fairly seamless because i didn't have my my ambition was not to be a movie star my ambition was not to be famous my ambition was to be, have a career as an actor and because i started my career as an actor uh, uh, training as a theater actor and and my first jobs as an actor were in the theater my first union job was a I was the driver at a summer theater um, near the where I was going to graduate school and at the same time they let me be in the plays and I got my <laughs> equity card my actors equity union card there and I got to work with some really good New York actors and then uh, when I graduated I worked with a small improvisational company in uh, Washington DC while my uh, uh, now ex-wife uh, was finishing school. She was an undergraduate. And uh, I did that for a year. I did improv theater, experimental theater at night, and I did plays for kids during the day. We played in, in grade schools uh, and uh, uh, junior high schools doing uh, Chekhov uh, and, and Edward Albee. And then uh, I auditioned for uh, a theater company in New Haven, Connecticut, and got a job there and spent a year in that company. And then I got an agent somehow because of that <laughs> and moved to New York and got a soap opera right away. Oh, wow. It was like, I, I, you know, this doesn't happen. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have a really good friend uh, with whom I just did a podcast, my podcast. I'll, I'll tell you guys about it later. But um, uh, who is a writer, he spent from the time he was 21 when he went to New York until he was 38, doing being a waiter, a baggage handler at Greyhound bus, uh, uh, cater, working in catering jobs, and at the same time at night writing plays, and you know, and he didn't get his first legit job as a, a as a as a television writer until he was 38. Oh wow! I was in, I was in my 20s. You know, I was in my like I was 23 years old, 24 years old. I got a job on the sofa. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I was going to say, it, it seems like you didn't do what a lot of the actors, you didn't do the, I was waiting tables during the day and doing no, stuff at night. No, I, I was really lucky, guys, yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, and, you know, it was a nothing part on the soap. I was basically, I was the guy who was, um, I was in the, uh, the pre-op room scrubbing when the lead actors would walk through the room <laughs> to go into the operating room and, I would, and my line would be good morning doctor and that was it hey your character had a name i'm looking at your imdb your character it, it, Stop, it you know. did. I, I had a name i was dr tom halverson i remember yeah. the character. <laughs> right? and that's all i had to say and, and i worked like two days a week and i made enough money to pay my rent and then i got a and then i got a broadway show 
Wow. Uh, and, and that wow. was, you know, and then I got another Broadway show and then uh, I got a, uh, did a TV movie. And then, you know, I was, I was touring around. I was doing a repertory theater all over the country. And then I got Dog Day Afternoon, my first movie. <laughs> I was uh, going to say that's the first role I, I really recognized is the Dog Day yeah. Afternoon role. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's the first kind of big public. But, but yeah, you know, I did a couple of Broadway shows, so that was that was kind of public exposure yeah. as well. But there were not, you know, the the kind of the pathway to stardom that most people think of. I was a working yeah. actor. Yeah, and that's the way I've always thought of myself. Really, uh, an incredible story. Like I said, because you didn't do all the, all the preamble stuff that you hear every other actor say. You know, you know. But but you, I was you, doing what yeah, I wanted. But you to do. you worked a lot. You did work a lot. Though. Yeah, I was yeah. working. I was doing. But I was doing. You know, I was working at the Hartford Stage Company. I was working at yeah. the Longwood Theater. I was working at the Shaw Festival of Canada, doing plays. And then I got some. You know, a couple of uh, of uh, Broadway shows, and that kind of raised my profile. But but I still was doing, you know, when I wasn't working on Broadway, I was doing theater in other places. Yep. And then I got I got did an audition for Dog Day Afternoon and I got that movie. And that's when I started doing movies. Now, as an actor, you've had a tremendous experience between theater and film, and yeah. they uh, they are both uh, very talented positions. But would you say that uh, theater is harder or would you say that that film is harder? Because in theater, I imagine uh, it's always before a live audience and people are always watching you and film. I'm not sure, you know, if it's always before a live audience. Oh, definitely not. The only kind of filming that's before a live audience is uh, is a live uh, comedy uh, half hour situation comedy with a with a live audience. Uh, that's really the only one. And that's kind of, you know, come and go. They, you shoot and then you go back and you shoot again. Uh, some stuff, you know, it takes hours and hours. It's not like a, a linear uh, production of a play where you're before an audience. Right. That's true. Um, harder or easier? I don't think of one or the other as harder or easier so much as that they're just different. Um, the the objective is the same, and that is to 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 round out your the character you're playing, uh, to fully realize it in a way that connects with an audience. But you don't really find out how you connect with an audience when you're doing a movie until the movie comes out. You do find out um, a lot about the people you're working with and the quality of the script that you've got uh, that you're working on. Uh, and uh, the, the the machine that is the movie making machine. It's not really like that in the theater. I mean, Broadway it becomes kind of like that because it's so expensive and, and there's so many parts. But generally speaking, theater is you rehearse for three or four weeks or whatever. And then you get up and you do the play for whatever the audience is, and it's either uh, successful or not, depending on the quality of the production. With a film, you you sometimes you rehearse, not often, <laughs> and then you go out and you shoot, and you can do it over and over and over again until you get it right. And sometimes directors demand that, you know, they want you to keep doing it. Do another take. Give me another take. Try it a different way. Whatever. 
And that's a challenge, different kind of challenge is all I'm saying. I think theater requires probably a little more discipline because you've got to, you've got to know what you're doing all the time. And you're, you're also in a state of constant communication with the other actors in a linear way from a beginning to an end of a story. With movies, it's very chopped up. And you may be shooting the last scene of the movie on the first day, depending on the, the requirements of the locations uh, or how it's being shot or the availability of the other actors. There's so many factors that are involved. So it requires, movies require you to be organized in terms of keeping in your head exactly where the character is in this particular scene, because you may be shooting it totally out of sequence. Uh, television, it's sort of a faster version of movies. <laughs> you just have to go faster. Yeah. I actually have a question that I've always wanted to act, ask an actor who's been in really good movies, and you have. Can you go, do you go back and watch those movies and can you enjoy them and still not, not in your head be going, I remember that day, that day was awful. I had a bad yeah, day yeah. that day. Oh, yeah. I have, I have that feeling all the time. Every time, yeah. everything I've ever done, I can look at it and go, oh, oh, why did <laughs> I do that? Why, why is that? Why is that now embossed in everybody's mind forever? because it's a big hit movie or, or, or it's a moment that everybody remembers when I'm not particularly thrilled about what I did, but you know, that's the, yeah. that's the name of the game. One of the great things about the theater is if you screw it up one night, you can, you'll be doing it again the next night. Yeah. And it's always different because the audience is always different. Cause I know right. people will say to me, how do you do, uh, for instance, I've been in shows where I've been in the show for nine months or a year. And people will say, how do you do it over and over and over? Well, because it's never the same. Because the audience is never the same. I would say, to me anyway, it would seem like not only is the audience never the same, the other actors aren't always, you don't always get the same, the same reaction, no, the same it, whatever. It, it, so. if, you're, if you're playing very much in the moment, yeah. as long <laughs> as you're saying the lines that everybody, <laughs> you know, that you've all agreed yeah. on to say, right? Yeah and you're in the same places that you've always agreed to be in, then yes, it changes all the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very exciting. Did you, I could see that. One of the things that I would imagine um, being an actor that could be very difficult uh, in theater is having to memorize your lines because, you know, you're out there in front of an audience and the play may be an hour, hour and a half, three hours. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue. And then in 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 movies, um, I always pictured it sometimes if you get your lines, there might be somebody in the background with like big notes that say what you were supposed to say. So I'm not sure, you know, how that's generally how in the movies. Yeah, you don't have you don't have teleprompters. Uh, uh, the soaps did because those were new every day, you know, and you were learning you were learning a half hour or an hour show uh, every day uh, in the theater. You have. Uh, at least several weeks to learn your lines. Uh, it, it, it's easier when you're younger. <laughs> it's gotten harder as I've gotten older. <laughs> Much harder. You know, my memory is just not the same. It's just not as flexible as it used to be. Be like the stories they say about uh, what's his name, um, 
the guy who played the Godfather. I can't even think of his name right oh, now. Marlon, oh, Brando. 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 Marlon Brando, who would have the guy with the, his lines walking yeah. in front of him, you know, yeah. so he could just read the card as he walked along. You well, know? that was a case of, <laughs> it wasn't that Brando wasn't able to memorize lines, it's that he felt that he was more spontaneous if he hadn't rehearsed them beforehand if he didn't oh, which, know what he was going to do that that he that he had more of a sense of immediacy and uh moment to moment if if he yeah uh, hadn't and it would seem more natural it would seem more natural yes yeah know, they're, they're i've, I've heard of, that before yeah i've heard that of thought I don't, I don't agree with it but that's the way he worked and yeah. he was obviously <laughs> he was obviously brilliant at it very good at it yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the roles I want to ask you about, because um, it is my wife's favorite role that you've ever done, and I, you probably get this a lot from different people, but Jack Skellington on uh, Nightmare oh. Before Christmas. Cool. And I wanted to know, how did you um, get that role? Like, how did you, what was the process of getting into that role? And um, what was that like being a, a voice actor for, um, a, I guess, a stop motion character? Um, I auditioned. I it was not a anything that was offered, you know, right up to me. I, I was uh, uh, living in California at the time. I don't live there anymore. And uh, I, I just went in one day and I, there were storyboards on the wall of the character. So you know what the character looked like. And then I also was able to listen to because they had already recorded Danny Elfman the composer and who sang the the songs, the Jack Skellington songs, uh, Danny Elfman songs were already recorded. So I got a chance to listen to his voice. And I had a kind of idea of what they were looking for in terms of the character. So I just went in and I did some reading of the lines. And I don't know, a couple of days later, they called my agent and said, you're hired. Uh, and, and the only, I guess the only uh foreknowledge i had that was this was anything special was the fact that tim burton was attached to it that it was a story that tim had created uh, uh but that it was to be directed by a stop action uh animation veteran director henry Selick, who's extraordinarily talented at this particular genre he's really amazing at it and uh the experience was really quite uh, a great learning experience in a lot of ways. And also uh, it was very cool to do. I'm looking, was that your first foray into a voice, a voice acting in that, at that level? Trying to remember if I had done, if I had done, I'd done a, a Miyazaki movie called uh, Nausicaa. You know, the Miyazaki is the great right. Japanese uh, anime director. And, uh, I had done a role in that, but that was after The Princess Bride. I think then if that was the case, then it was probably after. No. No, this was the second. I think this was the second. I'd done the, the Nausicaa, the Miyazaki first. Okay, yeah, there it is. Yeah. So, yeah, because 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 I because for you, I would have thought, was that a, an adjustment you had to make? Because instead of being out there in front of the cameras or in front of people, you're just you and a microphone. And <laughs> well, it, it's a, definitely it's an adjustment. And also the medium is very different because it's very heightened in terms of uh, the, the, the things that go on on screen. I mean, if you watch that movie, it's wild. Yeah. 
crazy. <laughs> Some of the stuff that goes across the screen, you know, the characters in, in Halloween Town, uh, the mayor whose head is spinning on his on his uh, on his <laughs> neck. Uh, uh, the fact that Jack Skellington is literally a skeleton. Uh, yeah. So you, you're not living in a naturalistic world. You're operating in a world that's very heightened. And so it gives you, in a way, a lot of freedom to um, to not some. I, it's not exaggeration as much as it is. I, I, I use the word heightened. That it's it's more it's fuller it's bigger yeah uh, and and so you can go in lots of different directions and that's essentially what we would do in the recording studio I would be in yep. there uh, I'd go up to San Francisco where they were shooting uh, like once every three or four months they'd fly me up there and I'd go in to the studio in the morning into the recording studio and uh, Henry Selleck and I would just go over scenes and I would record Jack's voice and he would say, okay, try it this way. Try it this way. All right, now do three, just totally different. Uh, <laughs> give me one yell where Jack is falling down the thing. Give me another yell where, and so it's, it's, it's actually a lot of fun because you can just sort of let your imagination run wild. <laughs> That must have been fun too, because I mean, Jack is all, Jack is always a high energy character. That must have been a lot of work for you, a lot mm -hmm. of us, yeah. Yeah, it was once every every three or four months. So I'd only spend a day, and then yeah. they record. They would uh, uh, he would choose the the lines, you know, the sort of the the what the the through line of the character for that scene he'd record he put all of those takes together different takes together yeah. and then they'd go and shoot literally 11 seconds a week oh that's how that much was... finished film that's how long it takes for stop action because every every fluid movement is a series of frames right <laughs> right so that every time jack goes to move his arm uh, the the arm has to be moved in in 20 different positions to get to that position never mind his facial expression in which his head has to be changed for every frame there were 400 mm. some jack heads oh wow <laughs> yeah. yeah with different so, expressions or you know transitions from a grimace to a smile to a laugh to whatever it's i, I mean the artistry of that kind of work is just beyond me i'm just you know all yeah in awe. So did you get to see it while it was in process or did you not see it till it was pretty much done? I go, saw wow. the finished version. Uh, they sent me a VHS tape of, <laughs> of the uh, of black and white with a time code across the bottom. Uh, and uh, because there were some things that they wanted to try to work on. Tim, Tim Burton had seen it and had some some things that he wanted to try changing a little bit. And they also asked me, much to their credit, if there was anything I wanted to redo or to work on. And most of the stuff that Henry Selleck and I did, we kept, but some of the stuff I wanted to change, some of the stuff Tim wanted, Tim Burton wanted to change. So the, then later I went into the, another studio with Tim uh, after everything was done. And we redid some of the lines, not all of them, but some of them. Very cool. Yeah, that that is awesome. I know that uh, you know something like that is a massive project and and undertaking. And yes. and you can hear zero in the background. Yes, I I heard that too. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I was gonna ask you, 
when it came to that and and doing the point uh, the parts for Jack, uh, did you get to interact with any other their voice actors with you? Were they there with you reacting to what you were saying? No, except for one day. One day I had uh, Catherine O'Hara and I had all the Jack and Sally scenes. But other than that, I was by myself with Henry. Oh, wow. All the time. No, never. Never had anybody else. So it's kind of like, you know, when you're working in movies and you're working on a green screen, you just have to use your imagination. Uh, you know, they, they furnish you with, here's what's happening. This is what it's going to kind of look like with the storyboards. But they can't show you the actual film because that has to be shot to your voice. So they shoot the, the 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 actual action of the scenes to the to the recordings that we do. At least in that movie, yeah. Um, when it comes to all the projects that you've done throughout your history and career, um, are there any that really stick out to you and resonate with you, and that that you said, "Wow, I really, you know, I really relate to this character." I think that maybe with one exception or two, as far as movies are concerned, I, I, you, you work hard to relate to all the characters you play. Um, so I can only say that, you know, certainly there have been ones that have been more successful than others. Uh, the Nightmare Before, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas certainly is one of them. The Princess Bride is one. Uh, uh, Fright Night is one. Child's Play is one, um, but those are movies that have had a long life. That is, that were popular when they came out. Dog Day Afternoon, definitely. But the, Dog Day was a big hit. But the rest of the movies were moderate hits. Uh, Nightmare, when it came out, it did decent business, but it was not a huge, huge hit. And it has taken on this kind of mythic life afterward. Um, same thing with the Princess Bride. Uh, it, at the time it came out, they weren't sure the studio wasn't sure how to market it. <laughs> so they said, well, is it a comedy? Is it a, uh, an adventure? Is it a love story? It's all of those things, guys. <laughs> Figure it out. Uh, and um, but there, there is one that uh, I, I never hear mentioned and only because it was a, a television special. I did a, a, a um, an adaptation for CBS uh, Hallmark Hall of Fame of Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities, Ooh. where I played both guys, both um, Charles, I don't know if your audience, if your audiences uh, had to read it in high school, probably, some of the people who were listening to your show or watching your show. Um, it's a great, great novel, first of all, about the... <laughs> Uh, French Revolution, uh, but also there's zero again. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it was a great experience for me because I was working with some of the greatest English actors of all time. Uh, I, I was the only American. It, we were shooting in England. We were shooting in France. Big scale French Revolution. You know, uh, uh, it was really something. And it was also I was very proud of the performance. Uh, where I played two characters and totally different, but who look alike. That's the whole idea behind these two guys is that one takes the other's place um, at the guillotine 
and is executed because he knows that the guy, uh, anyway, uh, if you guys, uh, any of your audience get a chance to read Kill Two Cities, it's a great, great book, uh, Charles Dickens, and, and it's an adaptation that's kind of, I think, stands up to this day. I actually saw that adaptation. It was very oh, yeah. well done. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. I told you before we started, I'm a big fan. I've seen a lot of your stuff. Oh, yeah. thanks, Paul. I appreciate yeah. that. I'm an old man, so I'm allowed. So, you know. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there are uh, other things that you're doing currently, right? Um, so I want to ask you what you're currently working on, uh, different things that you're doing. Also, uh, in that process, are you doing conventions, sign-ins for your fans and things like that as well? Yeah. I, I uh, Over the last few years, I've been... First of all, you answer your question about the Comic Con's uh, autograph signings, uh, and this is something that kind of relates to your original question, Carlo, about theater and and movies. And that is that when you're working in the theater, as I mentioned, you have a a, a relationship with the audience. You're you're getting feedback from them. You you calibrate your performance based on what the audience is giving you. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, in movies and in television, you don't have that feedback. And so you don't really have a sense of what your connection is with the audience. And one of the things that has really made me uh, appreciative of the process of just hanging with fans and signing autographs and talking to them is the idea of understanding what the audience is and how important they are to what I do and what everybody in my business does. We're not doing it in a vacuum. It's about what it, how we affect people and how our stories, the stories that we tell uh, relate to people's lives. And it's really quite extraordinary to me and humbling that I get to spend time with fans talking to them and and getting feedback about something that I've done that not necessarily I'm I'm responsible for because I didn't actually make the movie but that the that somehow they can express that this movie has brought them some respite from some trouble that was in their life where they could say you know I mean I had a woman who told me once you, your voice babysat me when I was a kid because my mother was a drug addict and she, oh, was wow. and she was never around. And so your voice to me is soothing and it made me feel like I, I had a home. Well, God, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> how many of us in our lives have that kind of effect on people? Um, and it happens all the time. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, anything is that dramatic, but, the, you know, just people saying, you know, whenever I'm feeling down, I put I put the Princess Bride in the in the DVR or the, you know, VHS or whatever, and I watch it and I feel better. Well, that's not a small thing to me. And it's not that I feel responsible for it, but they're just I was part of that and that that's important. It's important in the world in terms of um of um, just people's what mental health and their I don't know I don't want to get too grandiose about this guys 
but <laughs> so so yes, I, I do that, which gives me great pleasure. And in fact, I'm on my way to do one in Pittsburgh this coming weekend. I'm doing something called the Steel City Con. Um, and also, uh, I'm I'm I I was during the pandemic was I think uh, as a lot of us were we were languishing, you know we were all trying to figure out what the hell we were you know we can't go to work we can't we I, at least what I do we couldn't go to work, and uh, I have a very cl a close relationship with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and he's very much into podcasts and he said to me well you know you're sitting around why don't you do a podcast and I said why what would I do with a podcast. And he said, well, look, you're Greek, you're American, you're fat, you worked in a restaurant when you were a kid. You, whenever you come over to our house, you cook us great meals, do a food podcast. And I started listening to food podcasts and I thought, well, you know, I, I don't have anything unique to say, except, wait a minute, <laughs> I grew up in a restaurant. So maybe I could talk to people about growing up around food what it is about that experience when you're young that you remember and not just that experience, but also the people and the stories around it. And, and so I talk to people that I know, a lot of celebrity friends, some not celebrity. I have a friend who's a federal judge who I talked to about this, who's a gourmet cook, right? He talked about a woman who worked with his family who made bread by grabbing handfuls of flour and and never measuring and making the most amazing bread in the world and he still makes it you know it's that connection between his childhood and his adulthood that's important to him that he that brings back memories right um a friend of mine who remembers he were he ran errands for his uncle when his uncle had a jewelry store and he'd come in every morning running it to run errands and his uncle would check his pockets to make sure that he didn't have any holes in his pockets because he was going to be put jewelry in his pockets to take to the wholesalers. But on his way, he had to pick up brisket sandwiches for everybody that worked for his uncle. And he would sit in the corner and eat his brisket sandwich while the other brisket sandwiches were being prepared. And this description of the sandwich when he's 14 years old, it's just like the memory for him was so vivid. And so, well, these stories just keep flying. Uh, uh, even families who, you know, whose moms cooked and didn't cook. That's the story in itself. Yeah. Yeah. What I've got the only Italian that? mother in the world who didn't cook. Yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, I spoke to, there's a woman named Adriana Trigiani, who's a wonderful writer, a novelist who's, uh, you know, she's written 18 novels. She's been translated into 38 languages and she, she's, her family history is basically wrapped around her grandmothers and her mother and food. And the stories that come out are just remarkable. And then uh, a friend who, who all he could contribute was, he said, all I can remember is my mother crying at dinner time, and she would always cry into the food. So... <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> he said the food was terrible, but just that story was worth the yeah. conversation because it brought back so many, so, so much about who we are as people, because that's food is community. You know, we sit around, we eat, we talk, uh, things happen. So it's called Cooking by Heart, my podcast, and it's uh, I have a web website called chrissarandon.com, and I'm on all the website platforms um the um uh, i'm also on youtube i have a youtube channel but you, all you do is go to chrissarandon.com and you can pull up uh, there are probably 
seven or eight online now, and I'm doing another one tomorrow morning with uh, uh, Alex Vincent, who played uh, the little boy in Child's Play. Oh, <laughs> tell me about yeah, he's going to tell me about <laughs> growing up, uh, and I knew him when he was six years old. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. uh, let's see, the end of January, I'm talking to uh, the great chef Jacques Papin. Uh, who is an amazing, amazing man, and also who grew up in wartime France. Uh, uh, so he's got amazing stories about growing up around food and his mother, and uh, it, it goes on and on. Um, so uh, I, my the one that I just put out was, uh, uh, you guys remember a band named The Love and Spoonful? Oh, yes. yeah. John Sebastian, who wrote all Ooh. those great songs, right? And he wrote Welcome Back, Carter, Welcome Back, that song. Uh, I love that song. John, John grew up in Greenwich Village, and his parents were his dad was a a a, um, a virtuoso classical harmonica player, and they had a lot of very famous composer friends, musician friends, but also a lot of people in show business. And he's got great stories about the people who sat around his dinner table when he was a kid. He went to Italy when he was a kid and and stories of food there. And mm -hmm. uh, it just goes on and on. So I'm very excited about it. And I hope people will tune in. We're having a great fun. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out as well. That sounds like an amazing time. Just listening to the stories and, yeah, yeah. you know. I talked to the Friday Night Gang. I talked to every the cast members of Fright Night and the the director of Fright Night. Um, let's see, Carol Kane from um, from uh, the Princess Bride, Carrie Elwes <laughs> from the Princess Bride. Um, so a lot of friends. It's it's uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah, there's there's something magical about food when you're sitting with your family or friends. <laughs> Or, you know, even patrons at your restaurant and they come in and they sit down, they they get their favorite and like they're just so relaxed in that moment and yeah. they have something that they can relate to. And yeah. there's just, you know, I got to listen to your stuff. It just sounds amazing. Oh, it, it, it uh, well, I'm I'm prejudiced, of course, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> and we do some of them, by, by the way, live for an audience. We're doing the Jacques Papin for a. For a big audience in 400 seat theater in in downtown uh, uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, where the university has a theater there. So oh wow, it's fun! But a lot of them are like this; they're virtual. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you uh, before we close up the show um, is that you know me being the son of a pizza man and a pizza uh -huh. family. You know, pineapple on pizza has always been a big debate in my family, right? Oh. It's a huge debate. It's a like, you know, there's people that love it. There's people that, you know, avoid it at all costs. And there's people that would be like, if it comes on my pizza, I'll just eat it. But, you know, I block and unfriend people who oh, put wow. pineapple on pizza. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't have a particular prejudice <clears throat> against it. But at the same time, I cannot imagine ordering a pizza with pineapple on it. I would make you go sit at a different table. I <laughs> you go sit over there. <laughs> but that's amazing. Um, and Chris, you know, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, spending your time with us, telling us your stories and how you got to where you are. I'm gonna check out your podcast i'm also gonna uh hopefully see you at a convention one day and come oh, up to cool. your table absolutely absolutely 
Yeah. So, Pleasure. Uh, Paul, did you have any other questions before? No, I think we're good. I, I mean, I could sit here and talk to him all day, but, you know, he doesn't want to do that. So, you know, <laughs> I'm a big fan, big fan. My yeah. wife has other ideas as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Chris, again, thank you for coming on 4GQ TV, hanging out with us. And My pleasure, guys. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It was great fun. All right. Take care. You too.